Welcome to the Navigating Disruption Podcast. I'm your host, Shaquille Barmel. I'm the CEO of Ocean Blue Strategic and partner with The Summit Group. I'm a coach, consultant, and speaker, and I help leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals make an impact through improved performance. In this podcast, I share insights and interviews with interesting leaders to define practical lessons that you can use to make an impact in the face of uncertainty. We are proud to be supported by The Summit Group, helping companies to increase revenue, deepen customer relationships by moving from sales excellence to business relevance through transformative and engaging learning experiences. He came to business school with a few years experience as a marketing research associate. Now, 20 years after graduating, Dominic Atkinson and his partners have grown a small startup into one of the most innovative and fastest growing customer insights firms in the country. They have far exceeded their early ambitions. Dominic and I were in a learning team together back in 1998, and this is the first time we are speaking since that time. In this conversation, we talk about his journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the ingredients of a successful long-term business partnership. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, Dominic, how are you? Good, good, Shaquille. Nice to see you after all these years. Yeah, it's been a long time and you're looking good, man, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't changed a bit, a bit of gray there, but yeah, we're uh, certainly uh, not the kids anymore. Yeah, well, it's been, probably has been 20 years. I can't recall if we saw each other at the reunion, five-year reunion, but I think it's been about 20 years. Yeah, I think so. And, and I don't know if you remember this, but back in our first year, you and I were on a learning team together focused on a statistics project. You remember that? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little foggy to memory, but I do. Yeah. It's yeah. Good. Well, you actually, I think you were probably the strongest one on that team because you actually had a career in marketing research before coming for your MBA. Yeah, that's right. I was, I guess I had about four years of work experience before starting at Ivy, which at the time I thought was all lots and lots of experience. And yeah, yeah. looking back, I realized I didn't know anything. <laughs> but yeah, I went to Ivy thinking that this would be an opportunity to maybe change my career in a different path. And yeah. uh, I did so briefly after school, but I, I quickly came back to the world of consumer insights and market research. So. Yeah. I go back and forth in time. So why don't you tell us what you're doing now? And then we'll probably go back in time a little bit before we come back again. So what's your business? What do you do now? So now I'm one of four co-founders of a company called Dig Insights. We started the company 10 years ago. So this is now the longest job I've held in my, my life, 10 years, which is good. Yeah, I started the business 10 years ago with, with three other guys who I met at a previous employer. And it's a market research consultancy that in the last few years has diversified into also more of a, a technology offering. So the majority of our business and employees, so we have just over 100 employees. Most of our business has been sort of traditional market research consulting. Most people here in Toronto, we have an office in Chicago as well. But given changes in our industry over the last Really, over the last five years, we've also launched this, we, we call it Upside with two eyes because it's impossible to find a name in a website. <laughs> it's a normal world. But yeah, that's sort of our quick, rapid turnaround idea screening platform. We offer it as a, a SaaS solution to, to clients. The headwinds in our industry are not towards two-month-long engagements to get the perfect answer to right. a research question. It's more, I need an answer in a couple of days. Right. It doesn't have the perfect answer. So our Upside platform is, it's complementary to dig 
into the dig consulting business. But yeah, that's what it is. So my responsibility is I'm the president of the consulting side of the business. So okay. one of my partners is in charge of the tech side. And yeah. yeah. It's interesting. And we'll, I want to dive in a little bit more to what you're doing on the consumer insight side of things. But when you say that there's not really an appetite for long marketing research engagements now, it's quick insights, fast insights. I guess that goes along with the world of agile and design thinking and all of that type of uh, language, right? Yeah, I feel like I should have the equivalent of a swear jar that every time I hear the word agile, if I think a loony and I'd, be, I'd have a, a nice little fun there. Yeah, no, agile is definitely the word of the the, the day in, in my yeah. industry. We still have lots and lots of big projects that will go for a month or two or even yeah. longer engagements. But yeah, so much of it is a harried email or phone call that you receive and like, I need, I need some results right away. What can you do for me? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Totally get it. I remember when I was in consulting after finishing business school, I remember a marketing research project that I was working on. We had to hire, I think, Decima Research to, to help yeah. us. And it was a three-month, million-dollar engagement. But I don't think that really happens much anymore, except maybe in the political spheres. But that's probably not much of what exists out there in the marketing research world anymore. There's a, an approach for every sort of set of objectives you kind of... Yeah the importance of the decision, the resources they have available, the time they have available. And mm -hmm. yeah, we still do plenty of big studies that mm -hmm. go on for a long time and they're often multi-phase, you know, like looking at secondary sources of information to start and then qualitative research. So we have a qualitative division in the company where they mm -hmm. do, they used to be more face-to-face -face focus groups, obviously COVID's changed that. So now so much online through online bulletin boards and online focus groups, but a lot, often a lot of sort of exploratory qualitative work that'll start at a mm -hmm. project which then leads into a bigger quantitative study where we're now actually talking to thousands of people instead of maybe a dozen people. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Let's go back in time a little bit because that's how our brains work. Life goes backwards and forwards, I'm sure. I'd like to actually go back even further beyond us being together, doing our MBA back in 2000 or 1998 to 2000 yeah. and go back a bit into your childhood. Did you imagine that you would have the career that you have today back, let's say when you were 16? Yeah, I, it's not something that I'm surprised I wound up where I am. My father, who I have a, the utmost respect for, he, um, he started his own business. I was born in the UK. My family, my parents, my sister and I moved to Canada when I was six. My dad started up his own business soon after he arrived here in Canada. And I kind of always liked the idea of being my own boss. And mm. yeah, you're going to work really hard. It's nice to to do it for yourself and for your own. Mm. So no, not entirely surprised. I wound up sort of with an entrepreneurial bent. But yeah, that said, <laughs> I did end up working at Ford Motor Company, which my email there was dapkin10. So I was the 10th dapkin something <laughs> in the corporation. So I do have experience being a small cog in a big wheel that... For sure. Uh, lots to learn in large companies as well. But when do you think this idea, because I also have very much a consumer insight oriented enthusiasm that's come up in different ways in my career. But when you think about your interest in customer behavior, consumer behavior research, where do you think that seed was planted? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think all of us have a general curiosity about how things happen, why people do what they do. Mm -hmm. My undergrad was in the social sciences. I didn't have a business degree or smart enough to be in sciences or I actually have a geography degree. It was my undergrad, which aside from being good at blue questions and trivial pursuit was actually yeah. itself nicely to market research. I wasn't studying rocks and rivers. It was more 
demographics, economic, geography, uh, things like that, it did lend itself to market research. Yeah, no, I think it's just a general curiosity on why people do what they do, why they buy the products and services they do. And I found that it's possible to actually make a career answering those questions. Yeah, it was a good fit for me and my skills. Yeah, yeah. So what led you from your early career uh, experiences? What led you to this decision to go and go back to grad school and do your MBA? What did that for you? I started off in market research. I did, you know, my four years there, worked for a couple of different companies. And, and I quickly realized that I didn't know the first thing about business. Like I would mm. be in meetings with clients and I didn't understand marketing. I didn't understand finance. I was quite naive about the world of business. And I thought maybe a business degree would actually be good at this point. So I did my research, read all the literature and, and saw the statistics. Like, hey, I can make $100,000 when I graduate, which... Uh, <laughs> Didn't even come close to happening, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it'd be a chance to round out my knowledge. And when I got to Ivy, I sort of said, maybe I don't want to do market research. Um, maybe I'll do something else. And I actually wound up working at Ford Motor Company after yeah. nothing really planned there. I don't know if you remember, you probably don't, because if you did, other people would have too, but Ford posted this opportunity to go down to Dearborn for a few days for this yeah. week. And they had about two or 300 MBA students from around the world there. I think I was the only person who drove there. Everyone else was flown in, all expenses paid. Yeah. I drove there because it was just a couple hours from London. And they wined and dined us like you wouldn't believe. And I remember thinking, this is, we went to the proving ground. I just, like drove cars around the test track. They took us to the studio. We saw the clay models being built. And uh, <laughs> this is the greatest thing ever. And the Jack Nasser, their CEO at the time said, we just had our 13th consecutive quarter of increased earnings. And soon we're going to be bigger than General Motors. And they offered me a job. And I'm like, this sounds unbelievable. I love cars. Let's do this. And then I took the job. The day, the week I, well, I say, I told you about my email address, which was a, a harbinger and things that come, but it's a very big company. But the first week I started the first Ford Explorer Firestone tire burst and they started recalling vehicles. It was, it was an interesting couple of years there. It, uh, yeah. it gave me an eye to how big companies work, but it, it wasn't for me, definitely. So that's when I started saying, maybe it's time to head back to market research. You know, that's something that's very interesting you say that because I really do believe after years in business and as I coach young people is that you learn as much from the things you don't like as the things you enjoy. Was it valuable for you to have that experience at Ford and discover that's not something you wanted? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was nice because my clients now almost exclusively are big kind of Fortune 500 companies. So yeah. it's good just to sort of understand how things work in those large companies. My job wasn't terrible at Ford. I was in a thing called the Marketing Leadership Program, which was this rotational program. So I did a stint in marketing. I did a stint in what they call retail capacity, which is working with their dealers. And my, my third job, which didn't last long, was actually wholesaling vehicles to dealers. So driving mm. and trying to convince them to buy hundred wind stars and 50 Tauruses. <laughs> and if you buy those, I'll give you one nice pickup truck. <laughs> so yeah, no, it, it was good, but and it was also good to see how companies used consumer research because I wasn't in a consumer research role. I could still see how it, those, that information would percolate through an organization. So yeah. it at least let me say when I went back to research that I kind of had that experience of being in their shoes. Yeah, good. And then, so you finished up at Ford. What were the circumstances that led to you leaving? You know, it was that big company. It wasn't an overly rewarding job. I, it was out in Oakville. I was doing that commute from Toronto every day, which in the winter was just killing me. You know, snowflake fall at three in the afternoon. You knew your commute just went to two and a half hours to get yeah. home. So I actually, I got a, a really fantastic job at Canadian Tire 
right at Young and Eglinton, a Canadian company, which was great, you know, Ford of Canada, we were basically the sales arm of Ford North America. So yeah. we were just kind of taking what they give us and try and sell it in Canada, whereas Canadian Tire, all the decisions were made in that building where I was working. Iconic Canadian brand, right? It was all about Canadiana and the way we Absolutely. lived here. Absolutely, yeah. And a great company and a real leader in so many things. Like they were like with Motomaster and some of their private label brands, like they were mm. real you know, pioneers in that. They had a financial services division, which I did a lot of work with. They had multiple banners like Mark's Work Warehouse and PartSource and other companies like the Forzani Group, which they acquired while I was there. It was great because I realized I wanted to get back to market research. And between 1998, when I met you, when we started school, and when 2002, when I went back there, the kind of the internet came about, right? So right. my limited career before Ivy had been doing market research with telephone surveys. I was that sure. annoying guy who would call you during dinner. <laughs> I'll personally call you, but asking you for 15 minutes of your time to ask you a survey on the phone or yeah. it would literally like intercept people in shopping malls or even knock on their doors to do research. And then in those four years, five years, the internet came along and now all of a sudden market research was being done online mm. and this was all new to me. So my time at Canadian Tire was great because I got to basically commission all these great companies to do research and I was the client, I was the buyer and I got to, it was like this intensive two or three year experience of learning my industry from fantastic suppliers who you know, today are my, my competitors, the industry had just completely changed the way things were done. And this was how I could get up to speed really quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long were you there at Canadian Tire? Just over a couple of years. Okay. So you learned a lot in the short period of time. Yeah, exactly. It was like a two-year market research training uh, session. What can you tell me about Canadian Tire that I wouldn't find out by shopping in the stores? Oh, wow. You know, the one thing I would say is everyone always complains about the service they receive at Canadian Tire. Yeah. And, and it's not something that's not known. It's partly, <laughs> I think the dealers would love to give better service, but I don't know if it's still the case, but when I was there, they had all these ratios on how much the stores are allowed to spend on associates in the store. Ah. And they couldn't exceed that. And so the people are constantly complaining about the service they receive there in comparison to Home Depot. But so many of these dealers, I think if they were allowed to, they would have spent more on those things. Right. Um, so individual stores are dealer owned and operated and it's like a franchise kind of operation? Yeah, I mean, it was really fascinating difference between two corporations that both had uh, dealer models. So at Ford, the way it worked is they're mostly family owned dealerships for the most part and they're often multi-generational and the, the owner owns it all, right? So like, there'll mm -hmm. be a big dealership in Toronto that, uh, be careful what I say, actually Ford's not a client, but you know, like maybe mm -hmm. they're not doing the best job possible, but it could be like in the third generation and this grandson who's running the business or granddaughter, they're making tons of money off service, servicing cars that get mm -hmm. recalled and they don't really have an incentive to do anything differently. And Ford has very little control over what they do because they, they own the land, they own the business. Canadian Tire, on the other hand, is completely different. I, I, I don't know if this is still exactly the way, but when I was there, if you want to become a Canadian Tire dealership, it's, you would have to basically get a second mortgage on your house, borrow from your friends and family, right. and then send you off to Timmins or Kenora, and you would be in a little 20,000-foot store, shoveling snow, plunging toilets, stocking shelves, doing all that. And after a few years, if you did a really good job, they would move you to you know, Wawa. And after 15 years, if you keep doing a really great job, you'll end up with a really big store in Mississauga or somewhere okay. like that. And then when you want to retire, if you want to give your business to your son or daughter, if they want to become a dealer, they're going up to Timmins and they're in a tiny ah. little store. And uh, yeah, Canadian Tire, I, I think it is. The, the only thing that a dealer actually owns is the product on the shelf. Everything okay. else is owned by 
corporation. So the dealer's got every incentive to sell things, but that's all they own. They own the inventory, but yeah. the store, the land, everything else is owned by the corporation. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, I didn't Very know that. model and definitely the Canadian tire model is a, a better way of doing it. But. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, going back now, you made a decision to go to business school and you had a career coming out of business school, Ford, and then Canadian Tire. If you were to do it all over again, would you have gone to business school? That's a great question. And actually, I've asked myself that a lot over the years, like because I met some amazing people at school, some lifelong friends who I still see to this day. I think I learned a bit, but I don't know. I think my career would probably be quite similar if I hadn't. I don't know about you. I came out of there with a whole lot of debt yeah. that I would have happily not had. I think it's hard to, yeah, I think it's hard to actually quantify, but I'm sure it, it did help me. Like that ignorance I had, I, I didn't know about like the four P's of marketing and just things yeah, like that. Yeah. Basics that I learned. I think a lot of the management behavior stuff, which at the time I'm maybe, I'm a bit ashamed to say I probably didn't give it the respect it deserves because now yeah. I'm running a business, my God, it's everything. Yeah, I think I, I probably would have still had a, a decent career in market research had I not gone to business school. But yeah, I think it helped. I mean, it's interesting. My oldest son, James, is in his second year at Western right now, and he should be starting the HBA next year in his third year, which is kind of amazing. Full yeah. circle here where he's going to be probably doing some of these same cases that you and I did all those years ago. And do you know how much an HBA is a year? Actually, I should know because my son's applying right now, but no, <laughs> tell me. $30,000. Yeah. Year. Okay. So I knew something like that <laughs> compared to like eight or nine for a social science. Well, when we were there, they had just increased the tuition for MBA yeah. and we were paying, I think 12 grand in the first year or 14 grand the first year. And it was going up in the second year, which was a huge jump. It was like double what it was in the year prior to us. Yeah. Exactly. And so the question of, is it about, is it a worthwhile degree? I've asked myself that now as, as my son is about to yeah. take $60,000 for his last two years. And yeah, I think it is. I yeah. think it was worthwhile for sure. I think the connections were quite valuable. I learned a lot. I wonder though, is there a relationship between having your MBA from a school like Ivy and venturing out with some partners and starting a business, did it give you any, was there any relationship between the confidence or kind of just the courage to do that, you think? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably, there are definitely some parallels for sure. I have three partners and part of, I mean, I, and I couldn't wish for better business partners than the yeah. guys I started the company with. I trust them implicitly. Like, they're hard, they work as hard as I do or harder. They're smart. They understand things. Like, it's kind of like, a 48 hour report where you have to like trust other people to take on certain parts of the project and accept what they do as being maybe it's not exactly what you would have done but it's also it's, it's perfectly fine you know people say you know oh don't worry there's no right or wrong answer I'm like, no, there's plenty of wrong answers, <laughs> right answers. there's lots and lots of wrong answers and i like you know if one of our clients were to give me and my three partners an rfp for a new project the four of us would probably come up with different approaches but right I suspect the clients would be happy with all four of the deliverables they would get in the end. And yeah. I think part of business school gives you that exposure to the fact that there's different ways of doing things properly. Mm -hmm. I think the amount of work that we did in at Ivy, especially in first year, I'm not going to pretend that second year was, it was, and the first year, and especially the first half of first year, I don't think I'd ever worked as hard in my life. I, that was brutal. And, and I think just that hard work, I think any success I've had in my career has come from working harder than the next person, not being smarter than the next person. <laughs> it's uh, just, yeah, just sheer willpower. So I think that's one thing you get from that program. 
So the, the thing you said to that kind of first three months of really intense hard work actually stuck with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, this notion of like taking on things that you just don't know what you're doing. Like, so maybe just back to like my career progression. Like, so I, I was a Canadian tire for a few years and then I wound up going to another market research company. I worked there for several years and my boss at the time, he could sell that he, we'd go into meetings and say that we could do things that we'd never done before. And then after he was like, you'll figure it out. Yeah. And like this idea of being in the deep end, kicking right. really hard to keep your head above water. It's kind of a lot of what it's been like a, a dig over the last 10 years is particularly in the early days, like clients entrusting us to like most of the work we get come from clients where what they need to do doesn't neatly get fixed by some sort of off the shelf methodology that a company like a Nielsen or an Ipsos or a Kantar, I mean, I don't know if yeah. those names that are familiar to yeah, you. Yeah, they do. yeah, they do. Big multinational sure. billion dollar companies that have canned approaches. And where we've sort of found our success was when the problems our clients didn't fit neatly into those boxes. Mm. And so this idea being like, oh man, how the hell are we going to do this? We figure it out, you know, and by partnering with good people and hiring great people, like I just mentioned earlier, we've got you know, just over 100 people here at Dig. And honestly, in my industry, I'm sure all my competitors are envious of the talent we have because we mm. have a phenomenal team here that I couldn't imagine starting a, a company and building this team again. Like, I'd love to dive into that a little bit. But one, the one thing before we go there, you talked about this idea of being faced with a challenge, being asked to do something and not knowing really any concrete way, idea of how you were going to do it but mm -hmm. saying yes anyway. Yeah. Isn't that so indicative of the time we're in right now? Yeah. Yeah, we have, well, I mean, collectively as society, we're facing some society, we're facing some challenges that we've never seen before. And we, we have no choice. We have to solve them, right? We have to solve them. And yeah. so you've had that experience starting this business up and dealing with the problems you've dealt with. So you've kind of been prepared for this time. Yeah. If you go onto, I don't know if it's on our website or on LinkedIn, on the company profile, like this thing says, it's our origin story. Like Dig Insights was founded on the belief that blah, 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 blah. We wrote that five years after we started the company. Like right. <laughs> we didn't have this founding belief. Like we just realize we're going to work this hard. We want to do it for ourselves and we can probably do it better than what we were doing before. But yeah, yeah it was like, I mean, the first project we ever did was some focus groups for Rogers. And okay. until recently, we never did qualitative research, but you know right. what? They were going to give us some money to do this and yeah. bills to pay, kids to feed. And yeah, yeah. so it was- uh, you say yes. <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. Dominic, how long was the period of time that you and your partners were talking about the idea of starting your own business? Not that long. I think we'd all been individually thinking about it for, uh, for a while. It's always something in, it, that I had in my head that I would at some point want to do. Actually, in terms of it coming together, it was very hasty, to be quite honest. It's not something that we planned for ages. It was just kind of came together and it, quite quickly and at a point where we just wanted to do something differently. So when you all formed the company and left your jobs, you didn't have a client lined up already? Or did you have the oh. client first and form around it? Or Oh, God, no. <laughs> I, I, did, I did a presentation about a year ago at a conference. It was a conference, my God, it was, it was down in South Beach last January, almost a year ago to the day. And it's amazing to think that was a year ago because yeah. God, it was so nice. And conference, like you imagine? Anyway, <laughs> the presentation was basically, they'd asked me to just, give sort of the story of, of Dig. And I was talking about how we started the company and I, I put a slide up with all these logos of this like big household, like well-known brands. And look at this client list. Isn't this amazing? And it was nodding. I'm like, yeah, I wasn't allowed to work with any of them. These are all my, 
It's like Hubbard's were bare. I, we had non-competes, non-solicitations. And it was interesting, but it was actually, it was invigorating in a, in a way because we were forced to go ahead and get new business. And yeah. you know, almost all those clients that I was not allowed to work with, I now work with them again, you know, mm. like yeah. took a couple of years, but they come back. But it forced me to learn new businesses, learn new clients. And it was refreshing yeah. in a way. Like did a lot of work with my old employer for one consumer packaged goods company. And I didn't realize how sick I was of, of this was doing claims testing for toothpaste. Thank God, I don't <laughs> have to do it anymore. But yeah, it was tough. I think in the early days, I'm, I'm amazed we made it a couple of years because they were lean for sure. Was it a couple of years before you felt like, okay, we've arrived or we're stable yeah. and we keep going? It was about two years? Yeah, we couple of years yeah like we like i said earlier like so much of our success today is based on the fact that we have this amazing team of young people for the most part i'm turning 50 this year i think the average age at dig is maybe 30 like mm. it, it's a young company but in the early days like trying to get someone to join you like we were in my partner's basement for the first little while our mm-hmm. second this was this one bed, one room place on Queen Street where my partner Paul every day took a Tupper, a Rubbermaid bin home with the dirty dishes because we didn't have any running water in the office. <laughs> um, like trying to convince someone to quit their nice hundred thousand yeah. dollar a year job and come to work for us, it was hard. Yeah. Now, if you go on my on the Dig website, I think I checked this morning, we have like ten jobs posted right now. Wow. We had one. I was at a meeting earlier today where we had couple of hundred people apply for one job like now people want to work with this company whereas in the early days like getting that talent was hard but once yeah. you get a, a core group of like any industry like our industry is very small people know each other yeah once you get that nucleus of, of great people it attracts more people and yeah that's that's definitely key to one of the keys to our growth what was the tipping point at which you went from being an upstart, really couldn't go after big clients a couple of years in, then you're feeling stable. What was the tipping point at which you felt like you were able to have the credibility to get clients? What was the thing that, that brought you that kind of credibility? I think we'd always had credibility to do the work individually because all four of us had background of being researchers. So right. I can only do so many projects a year myself. My partners can only do so many themselves. Five years ago, we set this goal of, okay, where do we want to be in 2020? Mm-hmm. And we, we set a revenue target and we said, okay, we want to be a $20 million company by 2020. And at the time, mm-hmm. we were like a $4 million company. We said, That's insane, but it has a nice ring to it, 20 by mm-hmm. 20. Mm-hmm. And despite COVID, we actually wound up, you know, far exceeding that goal. Mm-hmm. But it was around five years ago where we, my partners and I collectively started to get out of the business and focus more on managing the business if that mm, makes sense so mm. started doing fewer projects ourselves where we were the lead person so we actually started taking on more of a managerial responsibility and bringing in people promoting people from within and, and trusting people to be able to do it and i say like now i have the way we're set i got i think 15 client service vps who each run their own basically like little franchise of dig and yeah, they're all great. So I think part of like that turning point was our ability to get out of the trenches and actually become mm. more managers and focus on what was going to grow the business. And I mentioned upside earlier. That was kind of that's when the seed of upside was planted when we realized that the headwinds in our industry were moving towards agile, like you said. Mm-hmm. And that's when we we came up with this idea. It, it's basically like Tinder for ideas. Like it's a very simple mm-hmm. interface 
respondents, but the analytics and stuff are really sophisticated, all delivered through a dashboard. We started investing in that. I mean, we literally invested millions of dollars in this upside platform. And it, that is the thing that when we pitch new clients now, we kind of lead with this technology side and mm-hmm. then more about the consulting on top of that. And mm-hmm. an upside, I think we've now fielded studies in close to 50 countries around the world. Wow. Like wow. this year, we checked out things like Guatemala and Nigeria. I won't talk specific client names, but right. like some of the biggest clients in the world, like CPG, tech, financial services, are using this platform now to, mm. to answer questions. So I think it was a combination of us managing the business, but then also pivoting towards this more tech focus, which gives us this impression because we are. It lets clients know that we are innovative, that we are not just. I won't disparage any of my competitors, but they have like tests that have been, like Nielsen has tests that have been around for a couple of decades. There's ad tests that other competitors have that have been around for ages. And I'm sure they've tweaked them to work online, but what we're doing, we started with a blank slate. Yeah. Built something that's really cool. That's awesome. And so you're basically pivoting to be a tech company now. Yeah. And still like the majority of our revenue is still on the consulting side, but where our industry is heading towards more everything has to be work on a phone now. Like when I started, my, well, I told you earlier, we used yeah. to people on the phone and do research. Yeah. Then it was on a computer. Now it's got to work on a smartphone. Now people need results in day. So that's part of it. Also, the business that we've grown on the consulting side, it's tough to scale, right? Like I said, we have 15 client service VPs, each of whom does a few million dollars of business and they have their team within them. It's hard to find those people who can right. do that work. And that's partly why we have an office in Chicago because we always had a lot of our revenue was in the U.S. that we serviced from Toronto. But now we, I think we have six or seven full-time people in the U.S. Wow. And so that's a great opportunity because that's so many people we could look to hire there. But the tech side of it is infinitely more scalable. Like I say, like yeah. we offer as a SaaS solution. Like some of our clients, they literally go in, do their own studies, program them all, launch them. They have results in less than an hour. Mm-hmm. And they have zero touch points with us as a company. So mm-hmm. the end game is still a ways away. But if I'm ever going to get out of this, if we were ever mm-hmm. to look to sell this business, a dollar of revenue on the upside is worth a lot more than the dollar of revenue sure. on the booking side. Subscription, license revenue, it's recurring. It's yeah. much more attractive to an investor. So there's so many questions I want to ask you and there's only limited time, but I want to dive into what have you learned about working with founding partners? What do you know now about working with your I guess tr- they were trusted when you started the business and you're still trusted. You're very lucky to find these folks to work with. But what have you learned about good, healthy partner relationships over the years? Trust is all important. I say my partners, I, I would trust them. I mean, I say trust them with my life. That sounds over the top, but in my financial life, I do trust them. With. They yeah. make decisions all the time. And I, I mean, I think you don't need to have the exact same skills. Like the four of us who started the company, we do things, we bring different skills. Like one of my partners, he's very analytical. Like he's practically like a data scientist. He was earlier in his career. Now he oversees that part of our business. Another one, he's much more creative than the other. So he's like a lot of our innovation, our marketing, he leads that. One of my partners, he's now our CEO. We recently gave ourselves these official titles. He just gets stuff done. So he always ran the finances and the HR part of the business. So I think you need to have complementary skills, but not overlapping. Right. The thing is, I don't, honestly, I don't know how people can start a business on their own. Like Mm -hmm. the idea of doing this by myself, I would never be able to do it. I'm not bright enough to be able to do it, but just the amount of work that goes into doing it. You'd have to hire people earlier in the process, but I'm so thankful that I did this with others because I think when you have one leader, one founder, 
I mean, I guess if you get to the point where you have a board of directors, they can push back on you. But if any one of the four of us has a harebrained idea, the other three will quickly say, Tom, mm-hmm. that's a really stupid idea. We're not doing that. We provide sort of checks and balances on each other. But then also we can take, if one of us has an idea, we can help grow it so much faster by having different perspectives on it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like just the idea of doing this alone is we've never been able to do it. So you talked about trust, which is, uh, feels like a very obvious thing that people talk about in these relationships, but then you also touched on this idea of candor. And if somebody says something that is uh, considered not a good idea, the others will say that is not a good idea. And here's why. Yep. So the candor seems like an important part of the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So the company broad, I, I hope we present ourselves as kind of a unified voice of this is mm-hmm. what we do, but we've had plenty of heated debates over the years and they don't last long. And we end up always, end, I think always end up in a better position through it. Mm-hmm. And I think all four of us could point to things that we wanted to do something and yeah, we, we were told it wasn't a great idea or we had a, a seed of an idea and it became something really good because of the others. So, yeah, yeah. I guess there's probably initial, a little, initially a little bit of a hurt because you thought it was such a good idea, but it's the team, I guess, is supportive so that you get through it. Yeah. Yeah. What about, have you had honest conversations about, you sounds like you've had honest conversations about individual strengths and the different skills that and talents that people bring to the conversation. Have you had conversations as anybody raised, you know what, I know you guys need me to do this, but I don't really want to do this. Does that come up in partner relationships? Not really. We, so when we, for the first, basically until a few months ago, we were just, our titles were executive director. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you call yourself co-founder, but we weren't a partner. We're not a partnership. So executive is our title. We realized, and we were all kind of vaguely responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we realized that we needed to, break up the responsibilities and really own things. And so that's when my title became president of Dig Consulting. Now we have one partner's as CEO, another one's president of Upside, and the fourth one, he's our chief growth officer. So he leads all innovation and marketing. But to get to those titles, we actually hired a, a consultancy who interviewed all of our management. So hmm. one-on-one interviews with 20, 25 people. And he, this company gave us a report that was, it was hard to read. Like the, the first slide, the first couple of slides were your strengths. You're like, man, I am awesome. Like, pat myself on the back. Wow, I am so good. And then you <laughs> three, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> how have I had a career? I'm a disaster. Right. Yeah, and it was, yeah. but it, it, it was, like, it was, it's all done anonymously, the feedback. And it, but it was very, and it, it laid out our strengths and weaknesses. And then this, we kind of knew the roles that we needed to create for this next phase of our growth, but this process of getting feedback from our management team right. was critical to getting that because yeah, it was hard to read your yeah. criticism because no one held back their punches. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. they were told to be as honest and frank as possible and yeah. certainly were, and that was great. So yeah. How did the decision or the discussion come about to actually go and do that exercise? Because that's a pretty cool exercise that you did. Was the decision to do that exercise part of the decision on figuring out roles and responsibilities for each of you? Were they related? We kind of knew that we needed to own things. Like over the last 10 years, if things went really well, I could kind of, we could all say, hey, great job, guys. And yeah. if something went wrong, we were all to blame. Like now I have very specific responsibilities. Right. But I think what and we knew we had to focus our attentions. Like we couldn't, we're the size now, the size of the business, it's impossible for us each to do a bit of everything. We need to right. own certain things. But I think it, it kind of really came to light 
just before COVID, we started to have some meetings with potential investors. And mm. I think it struck them. We went down, met some private equity firms, went down to New York, met some there. Mm. And when there's like, so wait, you're all just co-founders? Like it, mm. them, it, it didn't make sense to the outside world. And mm. we, I think we'd reached a point in revenue and headcount where it just didn't make sense anymore. Right. But, it right. was almost, we just had to grow up a little yeah, bit. Yeah. <laughs> but what prompted the decision? I mean, you could have just sat in a room and decided who was going to do what. What prompted the decision to get this external perspective on each of your in individual strengths and areas for growth and specialties? You know, I think if we had just sat in a room and gone through the same exercise the four of us, we probably would have come to the same conclusion. But mm -hmm. it was nice to validate it by someone else who right. didn't have an agenda, who didn't have any background. And honestly, it avoided some of like that criticism that I received, the criticism that my other partners received. I didn't really want to have to give that to my partners mm. face to face. I had plenty of opportunities where I've, we've said these things to each other, but I thought it was better. And also I wanted, and this wasn't just lip service, I wanted our management team to feel part of this process, mm. that they were, that we didn't just come up with this, that this was driven by their feedback. On ah, our that's interesting. So by getting an uh, objective outside influence third party, you're creating a safe space for your management team to yeah. say some things and they know how to draw things out of people. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So how would you describe your culture of the organization right now going into this next phase? Like, how are people feeling? What are critical imperatives for the way you want to drive your yeah. culture forward? I mean, the culture is such this vague term that yeah. everyone throws around, but it has been one of the keys to our success. It's a very young company. We try so much to promote from within. Mm -hmm. So part of one of the reasons why I'm so happy we've grown the way we have is it affords an opportunity for us to promote from within. So last year in 2020, even with COVID, I think we hired 37 people last wow. year. Amazing. And so when this kind of pyramid keeps getting bigger and bigger, a lot of the companies in my industry, outside of the multinationals, they're like 20 person shops. Mm -hmm. And if someone reaches a point in their career, like their senior manager or director, and they want to get to that next level, that often means they have to leave the company. They've mm -hmm. got to go elsewhere to get that promotion just simply because that role doesn't exist. One of the things I feel most proud about what we're able to do is I look at some of these people who've joined us five, six, seven years ago to see where they are in their career right now. And I know that had they been at one of these big multinationals, they would not be where they are today mm. because they would have had to have checked some boxes and they would have had to serve their time and they wouldn't even give them these opportunities. So I think the culture is a lot of it is this entrepreneurial spirit that it's not hierarchical. Like we do have titles, we do have levels, but an analyst or a manager is able to do what a director or a VP can do. And mm -hmm. similarly, our VPs and our directors, they roll up their sleeves and they do the unpleasant parts of what we have to do, you know, like pulling data into PowerPoints and yeah. surveys to make sure they, they're programmed properly and all these things. Like I think we don't have that hierarchical level. Culturally, we're a very diverse company, which I think really helps us. I think we're almost 50-50 exactly on, on, on gender. I, I saw a slide where we talked about all the different languages that are spoken at DIG. I mean, it's dozens and dozens. Like wow. I did a study in Indonesia recently for a client and I wanted someone to test the link. I'm like, Sinani goes, they want to speak Indonesian? And a guy we just hired six months ago is, yeah, I speak Indonesian. I'm like, wow. can you test this, <laughs> this link for me and make sure it makes sense? Wow. 
so we value diversity in that sense. We actually just, one thing, this is kind of in response to what's happened in the world in the last year, people wanted diversity by gender. They wanted opportunity for women. And so at our management level, it's pretty much 50-50, but we actually, we just launched, and it's such a great platform to, to promote it. We just launched a, a scholarship for um, uh, BIPOC, so Black Indigenous People of Color. Yeah. Um, we committed $40,000 over the next four years to scholarships yeah. for that, which will lead to an internship at DIG afterwards. But oh. recognizing that there is some diversity that's just not there the way it should be at more junior levels. So we're trying to, you know, work with our the schools that we hire from to. Oh, to cool. That. I don't know. Culturally, like we have fun. Like we're. I mean, it's a job's a job, but like we spend a lot of money making sure that we do fun events. Like yeah, just little things every year. Really, the whole company goes to a J game. Like just little impromptu things. Like our office is right next to Nathan Phillips Square. Just go skating. We have poker night once a month. Like one of the guys in the office organizes. We have a party every year that without a doubt is the best party in our industry. Granted, the bar is super low to have the best market research party, but yeah. the last one we had pre-COVID, about 400 people, open bar. Wow. We invite our clients. We invite our competitors. Wow. Like one of our clients is Corby. So all the booze was from Corby. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if this, yeah, I should say, we, we do a lot of work with cannabis clients. So we're, yeah. On the bar, there was like pre-rolls that people could take. Like it's, <laughs> it's uh, like it's a fun place. Like it's, yeah, it's uh, yeah. As far as it's a job, it's a job. But if you got to work somewhere, it's not the worst place well, in the world. And that is key on attracting and keeping talent, right? It's got to be a fun place to be. I mean, we can spend so much time doing the work. We should have fun doing it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. absolutely. And Dominic, our last few minutes, I want to just tap into your kind of expertise in consumer insights. So much has been changing in the last almost a year now. So much shock to people's lives, their working patterns, the way they live, the way they travel, the way they shop. What are some things that you're seeing, consumer insights, consumer trends that you've been noticing from your work in research? Yeah, no, sure. That's, and I'm glad you asked. So when COVID hit last March, like I remember, I'm sure we all have our own stories, but I remember we closed our office on March the 11th and realized that this is bad. I think April was our worst month we'd had in ages. Basically, our clients collectively just curled up and they were paralyzed. They didn't know what to do. Do we keep doing research or not? So we, out of our own pocket, we started doing this tracking study in Canada and the U.S. And we did, we've done four waves of it now. So we did April, May, and June. And then when things started to, you know, we COVID fatigue, maybe we, we stopped in the tracker, but we did it again in late November. Mm-hmm. And there's some really interesting data that's come out of this that I can kind of maybe summarize for you. What we've seen is kind of at the individual level, like individual people, I think we see people now, they actually, they feel prepared. Like right. in the early days, there was this real concern about losing their jobs and declining income and things like that. And, and maybe that's because the people who were affected by that they 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 went through that hardship earlier, but now individually, it feels that people feel okay about their own personal situation, their family mm-hmm. situation. But collectively, the concern level we're seeing right now, or at least in November, was it's jarring some of the stuff we've seen. So, like we saw this overall general concern go from April to May to June, it got less and less. But mm-hmm. in November, it was back to where it was in the spring. We asked this question, is the situation getting better or worse? And in in November, in June, only 10% of people said the situation was getting worse. In November, that was now up to 60% of people saying wow. it's getting worse. We asked people 
Do you think this is going to be resolved in, in the next year? And in June, 70% of people said, yeah, this will be resolved in the next year. That was down to 45% of people in November. So I think wow. this is sense that we're in this now for a bit. We've seen this big kind of faded trust in institutions, like people are no, nowhere near as trusting as the government now as they were in the spring of being able to mm. fix. One of the questions we asked is about this ability to, will COVID bring about the best of us collectively? Yeah. Far fewer people agree with that now. I think probably mm. from a lot of what we're seeing south of the border, but that's a real erosion of trust, I think, in some of these bigger institutions. And maybe that suggests an opportunity for you know smaller brands that maybe mm. can have this opportunity. We've seen massive, and I'm sure this isn't surprising to anyone, but the numbers actually are interesting that changing the way people buy products and services. So we asked people, what have you done for the first time since COVID? And things like telemedicine, 43% of people said that they've had a doctor's appointment via the phone or online. Mm-hmm. All the different variations of buying groceries, whether it's click and collect or delivery, like mm. so many people have done that for the first time. Uh, food delivery, buying clothes online. And then we asked people, do you think you'll continue to do this after COVID? And a large number of people say they're going to continue to buy their groceries online, that they're going to continue to use Amazon in a way that they weren't before mm. COVID. So many of these, you hear like people say, oh, COVID accelerated e-commerce by five years. Like it, it really is true. And mm. you know, we see that with so many of the clients we work with. The other, the last point I'll say on this is like, this is real sort of fatigue of, and this is November, so it doesn't even reflect the current lockdown that we're under right now, but mm-hmm. people are absolutely fed up with it. But it's interesting that not as many people are limiting their spending now, like they're still ready to spend. And we asked these questions about like, what will you resume doing once things mm-hmm. are normal? And in the initial waves, very few people said, oh, I'm not going to go back to the gym. I'm not going to rent an Airbnb. I'm not going to go to bars and restaurants. And, mm-hmm. and now we see people saying, Absolutely. I am going back to the gym when it's safe. I'm going to go to hotels. I'm going to restaurants. So I feel that this idea that people are no longer restricting their spending and there's demand, like this lockdown fatigue. And then the fact that people are ready to go back and go to live sports, to go to restaurants, to, to go to shopping malls. I think it's a great actual, it suggests that we're maybe poised to have our own 21st century version of the roaring 20s from 100 years ago. Like, oh. personally, from my business, I'm really kind of bullish about the prospects for the second half of this year because mm. so many of my clients, these CPG clients, the telcos, retailers, QF, fast food, QSR restaurants, like, I think their businesses are just, as soon as we get this vaccine in place and I think it's it's a great sign that people are wow. ready. They are ready to to spend and get back to back get back to normal. Well, and that is that comes that, through in these numbers. That, if you that, want to go yeah. to the website, you can download the full report. There's an equivalent version for the U.S. So the numbers I just mentioned were Canadian numbers. Yeah. What's the website just to give everybody a chance to get that? It's on diginsights.com. Biginsights.com. And that's where they can learn more about the study. They can learn more about your organization. And I assume that there's bios of you and your partners there as well. All hundred people in the company have got a bio there. So oh, nice. Um, yeah. But don't yes. use it to coach employees, anyone. Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you got a pretty good track record of keeping people. So that's uh that's mm-hmm. pretty good. Dominic, that's a great actual place to to kind of end this conversation because you've left me feeling very optimistic. And in fact, the idea that I have in my mind now that what could happen afterwards is kind of this 
post-war kind of boom that we saw after World War One, World War Two could be what we're facing. And that would be a lovely way to spend the next 10 or so years until the next something happens. And hopefully along the way, we'll see a lot of enhancements to our social values in life. And thank you for what you and your organization are doing to contribute to the diversity and inclusion in your workforce. Yeah, no, thanks. It's nice to catch up, Shaggy. Really nice to catch up. And I- It feels like yesterday now. I feel 20 years younger. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I really enjoyed learning from you. And honestly, there's a couple of things you talked about that I actually do want to follow up with you on. So after the interview is over, I'll reach out to you and set up another time to chat on a couple of professional ideas or thoughts or questions I have. Thank you very much and have a fantastic day. Okay. All right. right. Take care. Bye. There's an old saying that says, work smart, not hard. Well, Dominic actually said that he succeeded by working hard. I thought that was uh, an interesting perspective. So a few things I took away. First of all, uh, the turning point for their organization, their startup, was when he and his partners started letting go. They started giving the opportunity to others in their organization to move the business forward. And they took a step back so they could focus on growth and strategic thinking. The second turning point is actually where they're in right about now, is where they realized that in order to move to the next level, they actually had to divide and conquer a little bit and give each other clear, specific, defined roles. And what I thought was cool was that they didn't just sit in a room and decide who was going to do what. They actually engaged the management team. They engage their employees to to assess their strengths and weaknesses and help them determine who should do what. I thought that was pretty cool. And the last thing I took away was the optimism that he shared based on their customer research. Absolutely, people are having a hard time and in many ways are really struggling and are a bit pessimistic uh, with what's happening. But at the same time, they're all looking forward to getting back out there, spending money, going to restaurants and making purchases. I think that's all something we can look forward to. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share it. I want to say thank you to one of my favorite bands, Late Night Conversations, for sharing their song Chaos with me and letting me use it in this episode. You can learn more about them on Instagram at LNC Connected. And here's more of their song Chaos to take you out. Taking the police and from my soul and leaving me to die.